And a good morning to each one of you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're going to consider the text I had in view last Sunday before changing my mind. We are back on track. And I'd like to begin this morning by, by reading these verses and encourage you to, to follow along and, uh, and seek to enter into the narrative and seek to consider the implications of what we are reading. And so I'm going to begin in John 19, verse 16. Right through to verse 37. I don't think we'll go right to the end of the chapter. We'll uh, conclude at the end of verse 37 and save the rest of the chapter, perhaps for next Sunday. So beginning in John chapter 19, verse 16. So he delivered him. That is, Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. Let's pause for a moment. Someone, some place at some time has commented Aramaic, the language of the Jews. Latin, the language of the Romans. Greek, the language, obviously, of the Greeks. In other words, we have this statement spoken to the religious world, the political world, and the cultural world. Jesus of Nazareth. The king of the Jews. Verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. 
and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. I'm going to hazard a guess this morning that most of us have read these verses and the parallel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke dozens, if not hundreds of times. I'm going to hazard a guess this morning that we have heard numerous sermons on the cross and so why, why should we care to draw our attention yet again to the cross? The first reason is this, friends. The first reason is simply this. We must, we must make absolutely certain that we understand the cross. We need to be clear on this. We need to be sure that we grasp the significance of what is happening here. J.C. Ryle, he penned these words in the 1800s on the matter of Christ's atoning death. As the way of peace, truth is only one. If we are wrong here, we are ruined forever. Error on many points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's death is a disease of the heart. And so I can be wrong when it comes to my understanding of church government. Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Congregational, sounds like a bunch of diseases, numerous forms of church government. I can be wrong and be a Christian. I can be wrong when it comes to the millennium, post-mill, a-mill, pre-mill, pan-mill, meaning it will all pan out in the end, so I'm not going to worry about it, and still be a Christian. But if I'm wrong when it comes to the cross, if I err when it comes in terms of my understanding of the cross, in the words of J.C. Ryle, I agree wholeheartedly, I am Ruined forever. I can't be a Christian and get the cross wrong. And so I think that's why it's important we continually come back to the cross. To make sure we are clear in our understanding of its significance. The second reason is this. And John himself states it in verse 35. He who saw it, he's referring to himself. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. And so it's important that we repeatedly come back to the cross, not only to make certain that we understand it, 
but to make sure that we are gripped by it. To make sure that this is our hope. To make certain, certain that our faith rests in Christ's cross. The great English Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon penned, Stand at the foot of the cross and count the red drops by which you have been cleansed. See the crown of thorns. See his scourged shoulders still gushing with encrimsoned wounds. And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. Have we seen the cross? Not literally, figuratively. Have we seen the cross through the eyes of faith? Do we understand what transpired there and understanding it? Do we believe it? Does it grip us? Has it captured our thoughts? Has it captured our hearts? And does it stir that love for Christ which exceeds love for all else? Do we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's why it's important. That's why it's extremely important that we continually come back to the cross. And so today, it is our theme, the cross of Christ. This is our text. And what John gives us in these verses is very simple. He mentions nine subjects. I've included them in the worship guide. The outline is right there. Very straightforward. He touches on these nine subjects. And these verses, this narrative, it's almost like a photo album. So you go home, you take out a photo album, and there are the snapshots of your wedding. And you look at these snapshots and you look at these pictures and you remember your wedding or your vacation. And when you look at these pictures, they give you a clear view of what happened. Well, this is what John is giving us here. It's like opening up a photo album and there are these nine snapshots of the cross. And each one tells us something different about Christ's cross. And then when we put the nine together... We have a complete picture of the significance of what Christ accomplished upon the cross. So we're going to take each of these in order this morning, explain them briefly, and then then look at them as pictures and seek to understand, what is it? Answer this question. What is it I am supposed to understand about the cross through this snapshot? And so we begin with the first, the forsaken place, verse 17. And he went out, that is, Jesus went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. What is this snapshot intended to show me? It is intended to show me that the cross is a place of shame. How do I see that? I see that in the first phrase in verse 17. And he went out. Went out of where? Obvious question. Left where? The city of Jerusalem. 
Extremely significant, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews flushes this out in the 13th chapter stating the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, I know, I know, friends, this is a little tedious. We jump back into the Old Testament. And for some of us, this is a little abstract when we begin at unfamiliar territory, when we begin to talk about sacrifices and altars and priests. But it is of utmost importance that we get our minds around this. The context for what the apostle is saying in Hebrews 13 is something called the sin offering which is described way back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 4. When an Israelite sinned, he had to bring a sin offering to the priest, either a lamb or a goat. When the priest received that sin offering, he did four things. Number one, obviously, he killed it. Number two, he drained its blood and he took its blood into the tabernacle, later the temple, and he sprinkled that blood in the holy place, not the most holy place, the holy place in front of the veil. And then he took the animal that had been killed and he took its good parts, its pleasant parts, its clean parts, like the fat and other parts of the animal, and he burnt them upon the altar in the courtyard as a pleasing aroma to God. And then he took the bad parts, the unclean parts, the unpleasant parts, the hide, the entrails, the dung, outside the camp and burned them. Friends, that wasn't a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was a stench, and it spoke of that Israelite's sin that had to be removed from the very presence of God. The sin offering is Christ. The good parts, the pleasant parts offered upon the altar point to Christ's perfect life of obedience. He obeyed his father. He fulfilled his father's will. He fulfilled all righteousness. And that selfless act was a pleasing aroma to God. And if here's the shame, Christ became sin for us. Christ became a stench in the nostrils of his father and was sacrificed outside the gate. A place of rejection, a despised place, a ridiculed place, a scandalous place, a place of shame because of my sin and because of your sin. That's the first snapshot. That's the first subject that John gives us here in his narrative of Christ's cross. The second subject is this, the condemned criminals. Verse 18. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. What is the significance of these condemned criminals? They point us to the cause 
of the Christ, of the cross, namely our sin. Uh, In the other narratives, oftentimes these criminals are referred to as robbers. Uh, The Romans didn't crucify robbers. Uh, The word in the Greek is much more expansive than merely robber. Uh, These were the dregs of society. These men were guilty of heinous crimes, and there they are receiving their just reward. Guess who they represent? Us. The criminals are us. They remind us of the fact that we have broken God's law. They remind us of the fact that we have disobeyed God. And they remind us of the fact that the penalty for disobedience to God's law is death. But here's the glorious truth. As expressed by Isaiah himself, Christ poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And so we have this wonderful reminder of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, that he is the one who bore that penalty for us, that he is the one who became a curse for us. Christ is condemned that I might be justified. Christ is punished that I might be pardoned. Christ is cursed that I might be blessed. Christ is forsaken, that I might be adopted. Christ is wounded, that I might be healed. Christ pays the penalty, that I might enjoy the inheritance. Christ dies, that I might live. The cause of Christ's death is me. The cause of Christ's death is my sin. As the Lord Jesus hung upon Calvary's cross, he took my sin upon himself and there died as my substitute. That's the second snapshot. The third subject is found in verses 19 through 22. The controversial, the controversial inscription, 19th verse. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Jews are not thrilled. Verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered what I have written. I have written. I do not doubt for a moment that Pilate is simply taking one last passing shot at the Jews. He's seeking to throw salt on their wounds, so to speak. He's seeking to get them. And so he puts this inscription above the head of the Lord Jesus in order to heap ridicule upon the Jews. And yet in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, we see the resounding truth of what is written there. Jesus of Nazareth, who is he? He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And there we catch a glimpse of the wonder of the cross, do we not? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? 
that the Lord Jesus would exchange a crown of stars for a crown of thorns. That he would exchange the worship of angels for the ridicule of men. That he would exchange the glory of the heavenly temple for the indignity of a wooden cross. The wonder of the cross. The fourth picture is found in verses 23 and 24. The seamless garment. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots. So they're gambling for it to see whose it shall be. Here's the phrase I want you to notice at the end of verse 24. This was to fulfill the scripture. What scripture It's taken from Psalm 22. Now skip down with me to verse 28 for something similar. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. What scripture? Psalm 69. Now skip down even further to verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. What scriptures? From Exodus 12. And again, another scripture, verse 37. They will look on him whom they have pierced. What scripture? Zechariah 12. Did you notice the references? You have the book of Exodus. That's the law. You have the book of Zechariah. That's the prophets. You have the book of Psalms. That is the Psalms or the writings. That is the threefold division of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. What John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is seeking to convey to us in, in, in the most certain terms is this. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. The cross of Christ in its most minute detail fulfills the Scripture. In other words... What is happening here is God's plan. The cross is God's doing. That's what we see here in this picture. We see the author, the origin, the cause of the cross. It is God himself, his plan, a plan established before the ages, before the foundation of the world, To call a people out to himself through his son, the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is important we grasp that. Uh, At times, at times, we're almost given the impression by some that the cross is the devil's doing. I, I, I actually grew up with that kind of idea. That the, what happens at the cross, it's actually the devil's fault. The devil trying to get the best of Christ by killing him. And all God does is make the best out of it. You know, I, I, I really enjoy C.S. Lewis. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I love the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But that's the way the crucifixion is portrayed in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, isn't it? The witch gets the better of Aslan. And the witch thinks she's going to kill Aslan. And that will be it. It will be over. But she doesn't know what 
the spirit or whatever C.S. however C.S. Lewis refers to it in, in his in the Chronicle of Narnia. He doesn't he doesn't she isn't aware how God is going to turn that into a victory. And some almost have that impression of the cross. That at the cross, Satan thinks he's triumphing with all his minions. But he doesn't realize what's happening. And then God turns something really bad into something really good. That is a skewed understanding of the cross. Uh, Earlier in his ministry, the Lord Jesus informs the disciples. He makes it very clear that he must go to Jerusalem and there he must die. Do you remember Peter's response in Matthew 16? This shall never happen to you, says Peter. God forbid I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what's going through your mind right now. But this will never happen to you. Christ responds with these words. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why at that moment does the Lord Jesus associate Peter's words with Satan? Because Peter's words echo. What Satan has been whispering in Christ's ears throughout his ministry. No need for the cross. Back in the wilderness when he tempts him. Prostrate yourself right now. Worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. What's he say? No need to suffer. No need for that cross. No need for that atonement. I'll give it to you now. And Satan's goal is not the death of Christ at Calvary's cross. Yes, Satan's goal is Christ's suffering. Yes, Satan's goal is to heap ridicule upon Christ. Yes, Satan's goal is to use the instrumentality and the ferocity of those Roman soldiers to beat Christ to a pulp. Why? He's tempting him. If he can only make Christ recoil. If he can only make Christ so indignant with the humiliation. If he can only make Christ so angry with the injustice that he lashes out and he goes against the will of his father, he can undo Christ's work at Calvary's cross. You following that? Get behind me, Satan. For your concern is not the things of God. Christ has one thing in view. It is to submit himself fully and completely and entirely to his father's will. What is his father's will? Calvary's cross. Do you see that? That all of this is happening. Every detail from the soldiers gambling over his clothes to him crying out, I am thirsty, to the soldier piercing him with that spear so that the blood and the water flow out. All of these things happen to fulfill what? The will of Almighty God. Christian, God is the author of the cross. That is the fourth snapshot. The fifth snapshot takes us into verses 25 through 27. Follow along as I read them again for us. But standing by the cross, this is quite touching. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, that's Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, presumably John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What does that tell us about the cross? It points us to the value of the cross. Now you're thinking to yourself, that's a stretch. What, 
What, ha- what has that got to do with the value of the cross? Patience, bear with me. Let's begin, I think, at a, a very important point, very important place. Let's begin with what these verses don't mean. Within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, there, there is this idea that Mary is the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of the Church. This is a text Roman Catholic theologians appeal to to support that. Because, you see, John represents the church, they say. And so Mary is giving John, uh, um, Jesus is giving John to Mary, Mary to John, and he is making Mary the head of John, therefore Mary the head of the church. They take it one step further and they argue that you see just as Just as you have Adam back in the garden, the first Adam, you have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam. And there is a parallel. Adam, you have Eve back in the garden. And just as Christ is the last Adam, you see Mary is the last Eve. And what you actually have there happening at the cross is, yes, the Lord Jesus suffering on the cross. But as we're told in Luke's gospel account, that sword piercing Mary's heart. And Mary is actually the co-redeemer and therefore the mediatrix of all grace because she stands in direct relation with her son as the last Eve. I don't think I need to tell you that's not what's going on here. Uh, I, we, we, we participated in the in the preschool, Allison and I, on Thursday. They're they're taking the kids each week on a on a journey around the world. And they've been to someone. I think Brian came in and spoke about China. Vicky came in and spoke about Mexico. And so this past Thursday, we were sharing a little bit about Portugal and we were telling the kids about the history and a little bit about the religion and showed one picture of this elderly woman on her knees crawling to Fatima. The shrine erected there in Portugal in commemoration of the Virgin Mother. And before we left Portugal in the year 2000, it was 1991, Pope John Paul II visited Fatima and there he pledged his commitment to the Holy Mother, the Mother of the Church, as the co-redeemer with Christ. Utter nonsense. Absolute and total rubbish. That is not what's going on here. Here we simply have the Lord Jesus acknowledging his mother. The fact that he is going to be leaving her and what he does is he makes provision for her care. And so even in his death, even in his final hour, even as he breathes his last breath, we see him honoring his mother. Why is that significant? What is the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. Right up to the point of death, we see the Lord Jesus obeying the law. Right up till his last breath, we see the Lord Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. We behold the Lord Jesus doing that which we can't do. Obey God perfectly. That is what gives the cross value. Because the Lord Jesus was a spotless sacrifice. The Lord Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. A perfect, unspotted, unblemished sacrifice to whom our sin could be reckoned. 
who could bear the judgment of God in full, who could die, and yet one whom death could not contain. Why? Because of his perfection. Because of his obedience and submission to his Father's will. From the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, he could say, I have come to do my Father's will. There's the value. That's what gives value to the cross. The sixth picture, the sour wine, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now back to verse 28. When the Lord Jesus utters those, utters those words, I thirst, what does he mean? Clearly, he is referring to a physical thirst. He's parched. He is hanging on the cross in excruciating pain, excruciating unspeakable anguish, and there is a physical thirst. And yet, there is something more going on here. When we go back to Psalm 22, a messianic song, a song that describes Christ's suffering at Calvary's cross, we see that the physical suffering depicted there actually points to an anguish of soul. And so listen to these words in verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. The next statement. You lay me. He's praying to God. You lay me in the dust of death. What is the opening statement of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, the thirst is physical. Please understand that. And yet the physical thirst points to a thirsting of the soul, a longing of the soul, as that veil of darkness falls over the cross of the Lord Jesus for three hours. And the Lord Jesus bears indescribable anguish of soul as he is forsaken by the Father. There the Lord Jesus bears my judgment. The judgment I deserve is an eternity of hell. How does that three hours of suffering wipe away an eternity of hell? It does because the anguish of soul experienced by that man, the Lord Jesus, is of infinite worth by virtue of his deity. And that torment, as we hear it in that cry, I thirst. Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
We enter into the suffering of Christ. Friend, believer, please, please grasp this. The crown of thorns upon his head was excruciatingly painful. The scourging, we can't even imagine. The physical suffering and torment, real. The sad reality is this. That is often how it is portrayed today. In the movies, in the passion plays, Christ's physical suffering. Friends, the physical suffering, important. But not the most important thing. It is Christ's suffering of soul as he hangs upon the cross and as he is forsaken by his Father. There we have the wrath of God falling upon Christ. There we have Christ suffering hell on behalf of his people. So the sour wine as described here in verses 28 and 29, they point us to the torment of the cross. The seventh subject in verse 30 is the final cry. I already read it. Let me read it again. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Or it is accomplished. Or it is completed. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? Listen to the words of John 4:34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Atonement has been made. The penalty has been paid. The curse has been removed. Do not think for one moment that Christ is now buried, descends to some place called hell where apparently Lucifer is supposed to be and somehow engages Lucifer in mortal combat and somehow wrestles from him the power and authority over death. No, at the cross, it is finished. The work is done. That full atonement has been made, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. The end is the cross. And it is the completion of the Father's will, the Father's work. Hudson Taylor, years ago, was handed a tract with those little words in there, It is finished. And after meditating upon that phrase, he wrote the following, Then there dawned upon me, Oh, the joyous conviction that since the whole work was finished and the whole debt was paid upon the cross, there was nothing for me to do but to fall upon my knees, accept the Savior, and praise Him forever. He adds, Upon a life I did not live. Upon a life I did not live, Christ's life. And upon a death I did not die, Christ's death. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. It is finished. The final cry, it points to the effectiveness or the efficacy of Calvary's cross. The eighth picture, verses 32 and 33, follow along as I read them. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, that is the first uh, individual who was crucified with Christ and of the other 
who had been crucified with him. Why did they break the legs? In order to speed up the process of death. The Jews didn't want these individuals hanging on the cross because it's the preparation day for the Passover. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Why is that significant? Skip down to verse 36. John tells us, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. What scripture is that? Well, primarily it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. What is described back there in Exodus chapter 12? The feast of Passover. What feast are the Jews celebrating right now? Look at verse 19. Verse 14, rather, of chapter 19. Now was the day of preparation of the Passover. Look at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation for what feast? The Passover. And so what is the significance of Christ's unbroken bones? John is drawing a direct line. He is making a correlation between Christ's death at Calvary's cross and the Passover celebrated and instituted way back there in Exodus chapter 12. As Paul himself declares in his epistle to the Corinthians, Christ, our Passover, has been what? Offered. He has been sacrificed. And so there is this parallel between the Passover lamb associated with the feast of Passover and God's lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as that lamb offered at the time of the Passover had to be unblemished, an unblemished male. So, too, the Lord Jesus had to be unblemished. It speaks of his innocence. The precious blood of Christ, says Peter. Like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Just as the Passover lamb had to be roasted with fire, the Lord Jesus had to suffer. That fire speaks of the torment of soul. Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The lamb associated with the Passover had to be consumed. That family had to eat it. And so too we must eat Christ. It speaks of our participation in Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Finally, the blood of that Passover lamb had to be applied to the doorposts and the lintel. And it speaks of our faith In Christ, Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And when those little Israelite families took that male lamb unblemished, killed it, roasted it with fire, consumed it, ate it, and then splattered the blood on the doorposts to the entrance of their house, And the angel of death passed over the whole land of Egypt. And as he hovered above these houses and saw the splattered blood, he moved on. He passed over. And so too, God's wrath passes over all those sprinkled with the blood 
of Christ. The unbroken bones point to the purpose of Calvary's cross, our redemption. And one last snapshot, the pierced side. Verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Verse 37, it was to fulfill the scripture. What does the scripture say? They will look on him whom they have pierced. What is the significance of this? Well, there may be a, an immediate significance for John's audience. He was, he was battling with a movement called docetism in the day in which he lived. And docetists basically argue that the Lord Jesus didn't really die at the cross. And they came up with a couple of theories. First of all, they said someone took his place, maybe Simon or Judas, but he didn't really die. Well, John refutes such thinking with Christ's words to his mother. Surely she knew who he was. And so they came up with another theory. Well, what actually happened there was Christ, he, he merely swooned. He fainted. And uh, he was taken away, resuscitated, and went on his merry way. But he didn't really die. Well, to refute that kind of thinking, what detail does John include? The soldier thrust his spear into Christ's side and outflowed blood and water. There is theological significance to that blood and water. The blood. Christ's death seals my pardon. And the water. Christ's death seals my cleansing. There you have the double blessing of justification and of sanctification. We sing it in one of our well-known hymns, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. There is the result of Calvary's cross. My justification. And my sanctification, the twofold blessing of Christ's work of redemption. And then what happens, verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let me ask you, friend, this morning as we conclude. Do you understand the cross? Do you understand, grasp mentally its significance, its implication for you? Now, let me ask you, friend, do you believe? Does it grip you? Can you say with Augustus Toplady, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross 
I cling. Our Father, we do pray and ask that Christ might be glorified in our midst this morning. As we have seen him through the eyes of faith lifted up, may you lift up our hearts in wonder and draw forth worship and draw forth love and draw forth praise. May this one who is preeminent in your thoughts, in your mind, in your plans, may this one who is the sum of all things be preeminent in our lives. And may he receive all the glory. And we ask it in his worthy name. Amen.